the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Oman God, Amen. Last week, we spoke about the first chapter of the first letter of St. Paul to his disciple, Timothy. And we mentioned that the theme of this letter is two things. Number one, St. Paul instructing his disciple Timothy as the bishop of Ephesus to fight against the false teaching and to confirm and to establish the sound and true doctrines of faith. And the second reason why St. Paul sent this letter to Timothy in order to instruct him how to supervise and to manage the affairs of the church. Chapter 2 that we will study tonight address the affairs of the church, especially in two areas, prayer and worship. From verse 1 to 7, St. Paul gave clear instructions about prayers. Verse 8, instruction concerning men and worship. From verse 9 to verse 15, instruction concerning women and worship. Let's read together from verse 1. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. When St. Paul says, therefore, then he is connecting what he is going to say with what he already said in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, he was instructing Timothy to fight against the false teaching. Fighting against the false teaching and to defend the right doctrine needs a life of prayer. That's why he told him, therefore, in order to be able to fight the false teaching and in order to defend the sound doctrines, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. The main call for the church is to pray. That's why St. Paul said, first of all. And when we pray together, actually we fulfill the calling of God. As we're going to read in, in verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of, uh, of God our Savior. So when we gather together and we pray, actually we are fulfilling the calling of God for the church to pray. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks. Some church fathers said this, that these are four types of prayer. Four types of prayer. Supplications, when we ask for something, when we make requests, that's what we call supplication. Prayer is not asking for something, but it is connectedness with God. It is expressing my feeling and my emotions and how I feel about God. For example, when I say to the Lord, your presence in my life, give me peace, give me joy. Here I'm not 
making a request, but I'm expressing my feeling toward God. This is what we call prayer. Intercessions, when we pray on behalf of others, that's what we call intercession. Here, I forget myself, but I pray on behalf of others. And finally, giving thanks is the attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving and praising God for who he, for who he is. Prayer, I am grateful to God for what he did for me. But thanksgiving is praising God for who he is. When we say, holy, 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 the Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory and honor. Here I'm not speaking about what God did for me, but I am praising God for his holiness. That is prayer, that is thanksgiving. And many church fathers said that this order that St. Paul mentioned, actually there is hierarchy in this order. The highest form of prayer is praising God. This is the prayer of the seraphim and the cherubim. That's why in the Gregorian liturgy, we say, you gave us the praises of the seraphim. Then comes under it the intercessions. When I pray on behalf of others, why intercession comes after giving thanks because in intercession there is no selfishness i'm not focusing on my needs i'm not focusing even on giving thanks on my behalf but when i forget myself and start to intercede for others this is good and acceptable before God. Then comes under it the prayer, which is to address my feeling toward God, address my gratitude toward God. And this comes after intercession because it is focused on me. And the last form of prayer is the supplications. Because here I am asking for something, I'm requesting something. So the highest form is to praise God for who he is. And the lowest form of prayer is to ask for something. Especially when we ask for materialistic things. But some church fathers said that these are not four types of prayer. But these four things are four attitudes of prayer. Let me explain to you what do I mean. The prayer in general is to supplicate, to ask God for something. But when I ask God of something, for something, I have to do it with feeling toward God while I'm loving God. Otherwise, I'll be taking advantage of God if I ask him for something, but I am not really in relationship with him. So when I pray and ask for something, I have to be in a relationship with God. That's prayer. And when I ask for something, I shouldn't ask for myself only, but I ask for everybody. So that is what we call supplication. 
And this asking should be done with attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving. That's why some father said, these are not four different styles of prayer, but different attitudes of one style. In the Divine Liturgy, we find that these four forms exist in the Divine Liturgy. For example, in the litanies, we are doing intercessions. We pray not only for all men, but even for, for the creation. We pray for the water, we pray for the plants, we pray for the air of heaven. And in, uh, in the Divine Liturgy, there is prayer and giving thanks. Prayer, when we thank God because He covered us, helped us, supported us, brought us to this hour. And giving thanks when we pray like, Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory and honor. Also, the divine liturgy is full of supplications when we address our needs and present our needs before God. For example, when we say, read them according to their measure. So the divine liturgy fulfills the four forms of prayer, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We don't pray only for the believers, but we pray for all men, the believers and the non-believers. We don't pray only for those whom we love, but we pray also for our enemies and those who hurt us. When we pray, we should stand before God on behalf of all the creation. And then in verse 2, St. Paul start to say, yes, you need to pray for all men, but special prayer and special attention should be made regarding the leaders. As he said, for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Leaders are in need of prayers more than anybody else. Why? Because if the leader led his people in wisdom, the whole people will grow and live together in peace. And the atmosphere will be atmosphere of love in which we can grow spiritually. But if the leader messed up, then the whole people, the whole flock will be affected. That's why again in the Divine Liturgy, we pray for all the leaders. We pray for our religious leaders and also for the uh, civil leaders. We pray for our patriarch. We pray for the bishops. We pray for the all the hegemons, priests, all the hierarchy of the church. And also we pray for the kings, the president, the rulers, the ministers. So that God may guide them in their mission. And God direct their ways. This will be reflected on us. So when we pray for the leaders, it is not for our personal ease, but we pray for the leader so that we may carry out our purpose in the world 
in, in, in the right way. We have a mission in the world. In order to preach the word of Christ, in order to live together in peace. And why it's important to live together in peace? Because the psalmist says that the fruit of righteousness is planted in peace. So in order to plant the fruit of righteousness, you have to have a field or a ground of peace. So we pray for the leaders, for the gangs, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. Quiet and peaceable life. In all godliness and reverence. So the main purpose is to live in peace together, peaceable life. And when the atmosphere will be a peaceful atmosphere, I will have peace with myself. That's what St. Paul meant by the word quiet. I will have peace with myself. I'm not going to be angry from within. Sometimes we get angry because uh, the leaders made wrong decisions that affected our you know, life. So when God directed the leaders, I'll be quiet and calm from within. That's quietness. And also, I will have peace with God. I can grow in my spiritual life with God. And here, I can live godly. That's why he said, in all godliness. And we will live in peace with one another. We will respect one another. We will not take advantage of one another. So we will live in reverence with one another. So when we live in peace, I, I will have quietness, which is peace with myself, godliness, which is peace with God, and reverence, which is peace with others. Verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Do you want to do something good and acceptable before God? Pray. When you pray, you are offering a sacrifice that is acceptable before God. Let us take this instruction of St. Paul as motivation for us to live a life of prayer. Let us engage ourselves in all these forms of prayer. Let us have our personal time with God every day. Let us learn how to pray without ceasing. Prayer can move the mountains. Prayer opens the doors of heaven. Prayer can lead sinners to repentance. Prayer can bring peace on earth. Those who do not pray, they don't realize what they are missing. This is good and acceptable before in the sight of God our Savior. Why he described God here as our Savior? When we pray for the leaders, then God will save us from the evils of the society and the evil of the environment. That's why God will be happy with our prayers for the leaders. Because it is the desire of God to save us from all evil. So when we pray, actually we are fulfilling the desire of God in our salvation. That's why it is good and acceptable. God will not save us unless if we ask, as he told us, ask and you shall receive. Knock and it will be opened for you. So when we pray, we please God because we fulfill his will uh, and his desire to save us. 
that's why in verse 4, St. Paul said, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? God doesn't desire that any one of us perish, but his desire for everyone is to be saved. And one way to fulfill this desire is to pray. That's why God sent his son to the world in order to die on the cross in order to save us. That is the desire of God, to save us not only from the evils of the society, but also from the eternal damnation. And the prayers is the way of repentance. As Saint Isaac of Syrian said, if you believe that there is a way to repent other than prayer, you are deceived. Prayer is the way of repentance. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here Saint Paul again, is emphasizing the importance of knowing the truth in order to be saved. As I mentioned last time, many people say it doesn't matter to know the sound doctrine. As long as I have relationship with God, that all what it counts. Why should I study the doctrines and the dogmas? And as I explained, that sound doctrine will dictate my behavior. So sound doctrine is essential element in our salvation. That's why it is the desire of God that all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here, just I want to highlight two words, the word the knowledge and the word the truth. Knowledge because many of us are content to be ignorant. They don't make the effort to know. And they say, I'm not a theologian. Just, I, I'm content to have this superficial relationship with God. But no, it is the desire of God to be knowledgeable and to know. To know the truth, because the truth will set you free. Because by the truth will be saved. As the Lord said in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. So when I know the truth, I will be sanctified. So here St. Paul in this verse emphasizing the importance of knowing and also the importance of knowing the truth versus knowing false teaching or false doctrine. And this is the desire of God. It is the desire of God that all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Desire only is not enough. With desire, there has to be action. If I desire to repent, but if I don't repent, this desire will not save me. Again, when God desired that we be saved, he was not content to have the desire only, but he did an action. What did he do? He sent his son to the world in order to save us. So this desire is translated into an action. And your desire to be righteous, to be holy, to be godly, has to be translated into an action. That's why in verse uh, 5, St. Paul said, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. He wants to say here, the desire of God was translated into an action. God sent his son, who is 
a God who is true God. Who is true God. That's why he said there is one God and one mediator. One God and one mediator speaking about the Son. Between God, between the Father and men and us. The man Christ Jesus. So Jesus Christ is perfect human. That's why he called him the man. And perfect divine. That's why he called him God. There is one God and the man Jesus Christ. This humanity and divinity were united together without mingling, without confusion, without alteration. So these two natures are united together without mingling, without confusion, and without alteration. And this man-God or God-man, Jesus Christ, became a mediator, as we explained in the letter to Hebrews, a mediator of a new covenant between the Father and between the humanity. Jesus Christ became a mediator between God the Father and between us. And here I'd like to differentiate between two types of intercession. The petitionary intercession and the propitiatory intercession. When the saints intercede on our behalf, that's what we call petitionary intercession. They are making petition on our behalf. But for the propitiatory intercession, to make propitiation, nobody can make propitiation on our behalf except the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither an angel, nor an archangel, neither a patriarch, nor a prophet, you have entrusted on our salvation, as we say in the Gregorian liturgy. So, when St. Paul says, there is, there is one God and one mediator, he's not speaking about the petitionary intercession, but he's speaking about the propitiatory intercession. That's why in verse 6 he said, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. How the Lord Jesus Christ made propitiation, how he redeemed us by giving himself as a ransom. What's a ransom? A ransom is what is given in exchange for another as the price of his redemption. So in order for us to be redeemed, the Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood and paid his life as the price for our redemption. That's why Jesus Christ is a ransom for all men. He died for everybody, but not everybody will benefit from his death except those who accept him and believe in him. So although the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all, but only those who will accept him who will benefit from his salvation and his redemption. So God was not content with the desire, but he translated this desire into an action by sending his son to the world, and this son gave himself a ransom for all, for all of us. So if you have a desire to be godly, to be holy, to be righteous, the desire is not enough, but you need to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow his footsteps so that you will be saved. To be testified in due time means that this redemption in the times which seemed best to God, to the divine wisdom, was to be testified to every nation and people and tongue. So this redemption will be preached 
in every place in the world. But in the due time, in the time that is appointed by God, in the time according to the divine wisdom. So this redemption will be testified in the whole world in the due time according to the plan of God. That's why God sent St. Paul in order to bear witness, in order to testify for his redemption. And God called St. Paul to be an apostle for the Gentiles. As St. Peter was appointed to be an apostle for the Jews, so St. Paul was appointed to be an apostle for the Gentiles. Verse 7, St. Paul says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. God has appointed me to be a preacher and apostle in order to testify for this redemption. And here we should understand that being an apostle, being a priest, being a bishop, it's a calling from God, which I was appointed, as St. Paul mentioned in his letter to Hebrews, no one takes this honor for himself, but he who is called from God as Aaron, for which I was appointed. A preacher, what's a preacher? A preacher is the one who is spreading the good news, the good news of salvation. And an apostle, the apostle is the one who is carrying a message, an epistle, a message from God, a message from God. So when God sent the St. Paul, he became an apostle, and also he is a preacher because he is preaching the glad tidings of salvation to the nations. And St. Paul here, he is affirming his calling to be an apostle by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. Because many people attacked St. Paul and cast doubt on his apostleship because he didn't see the Lord Jesus Christ in flesh as the rest of the apostles. That's why in many letters St. Paul is affirming that he was appointed by God as an apostle. Definitely, he was not doing this out of pride or ego, but in order uh, to confirm that all the churches and all the priests and all the bishops, bishops that he appointed are legitimate. Because if the apostleship of St. Paul was doubted, then all his ordinations, all the churches that he established are not true churches. So he's defending his apostleship not out of ego or pride, but in order to defend the churches and the ordinations that he made. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, and a teacher. So he assumed the three responsibilities, to be a preacher, to be an apostle, to be a teacher. We said the preacher is the one who spreads the good news. Apostle, a one who is, ha who is carrying a message from God. A teacher is the one who is explaining the truth of faith. Who is explaining the true faith. That's why he said, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A teacher in faith and truth. So I am teaching the Gentiles the truth about the faith. And who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are the non-Jewish people. The Gentiles are the non-Jewish. And the main focus of the ministry of St. Paul was the Gentile. As he said that God appointed St. Peter to be an apostle for the Jews, and he appointed me to be an apostle for the Gentiles. Then St. Paul 
after he affirmed his position as an apostle, now he has the right to give instruction about the public worship. And as an apostle, he has the right to uh, instruct Timothy, the bishop of Ephesus, about the affairs of the church. That's why in verse 8, he starts to give instruction about the public worship. First, in verse 8, he spoke about men and worship. He said, I desire, as an apostle, that's why he said, therefore, I desire, therefore, as an apostle, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So, what's his desire? His desire, number one, is that we should pray. He explained in verse 1 to verse 7 the importance of prayer and its relationship with salvation. That's why his desire that all of us, we should pray. Pray every time and everywhere. Pray without ceasing. But how to pray? Lifting up holy hands. Here St. Paul is speaking about a posture in prayer. When we pray, we lift up our hands. But again, this posture has meaning. It's a meaning of supplication. I'm asking something from God, like a beggar when he asks something. So when we lift up our hands before God, we are asking, requesting, supplicating, entreating God. But he said, lifting up holy hands. In order for God to accept my prayer as a sacrifice acceptable and good before him, these hands, which means all my works and all my deeds should be holy. I have to live life of repentance so that when I lift up my hands in prayer, God will accept my prayer. Without wrath, without being angry at somebody, without holding grudges in my heart against somebody, but with a forgiving spirit. That's why the Lord said, if you come to the church and you offer your gift on the altar, and you remember that there is something between you and your brother, leave your gift, go, first be reconciled, then come and pray and offer your gift. If I am praying while my heart is not forgiving, while my heart is holding grudges, God will not accept this as a prayer. That's why he said, with holy hands, without wrath, and also without doubting, with faith, trusting God's promises, trusting that God is able to fulfill all his promises. So that's his desire, that we pray, pray everywhere and all the time, lifting up in, in attitude of thanksgiving and uh, gratitude to God, supplicating, but with a repenting heart, without wrath, without unforgiving spirit, and without doubting, with faith in Christ. And from verse 9, he addressed the issue of women and uh, worship. He said, in like manner also, again, I'm speaking with my authority as an apostle appointed by God, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. 
Many people think that there is no relation between my appearance from outside and my heart from within. But actually, your appearance from outside reflects what's in your heart. So, your appearance from outside tells me about who you are. That's why St. Paul said, godly women who have godly spirit, their appearance from outside will be modest, will be godly. He said, the true adornment of women is not the appearance from outside, the costly clothing, the pearls, the gold, the braided hair, but her good works, her godly life, that is the true adornment of a woman. In verse 10 he said, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Which means the true adornment of women is good works. So when I see a woman with good works, I can tell that she is professing godliness. She is showing her godliness through her deeds and her actions. So, when we come to the church to worship, women, before examining their appearance from outside, they should examine their hearts, and they should examine their good works, their godliness, the fear of God. In order to stand before God, and God accept your prayer, you should pay attention more to within, more than without. And from outside, don't pay that much attention to the braided hair and the gold and pearls and costly clothing, but adorn yourself in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. Because Women dressing modestly causes less distraction. And in the church, when we assemble together to pray, we want to minimize the distraction in order to focus on God. That's why St. Paul gives this instruction. Then from verse 11, St. Paul starts to speak about authority in the church. He said, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Usually, the word submission has a negative meaning in our minds. And many of us don't feel comfortable with submission. Although the word submission was said about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul said that the Son himself will submit. So, submission shouldn't have this negative understanding. I think we have this negative feeling about submission because we connect submission with the submission of the slaves. But if we understand that the submission in the Bible is submission in love, not like the submission of the slaves, then we will understand that submission actually is a positive word, not a negative word. And we have to take the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who accepted to submit to God the Father. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Here, why St. Paul said, let the woman learn in silence with all submission. This has to do with the rules of genders. When God created Eve, when God created a woman, this means there is a need for a different gender. Otherwise, God would create another man. But when God created Adam and then he created Eve, this means that these two genders with the differences between these two genders is very important and very essential to have a happy life. So if you want to eliminate these differences between the two genders, then actually we are attacking the plan of God. As if we are saying to God, you don't understand what you are doing. These two genders shouldn't have any differences. These two genders should be replica of each other. But God would create another man. The fact that God created a woman, not a man, this means God intended some differences. And these differences are essential. And when I say there are differences, it's not about who is superior to whom. Because both of them are essential to the goodness of the world. And between these two genders, there is order and there is different rules. The different rules, again, does not doesn't have the implication of superiority. Let me give you an example. In your body, you have the brain and you have the heart. Both of them are very essential for the life of the body. But the function of the brain is different than the function of the heart. And the brain and the heart are interdependent on each other. The heart nourishes the brain with the blood. And the brain sends signals to the heart to regulate its movement and its function. And the heart should be submissive to the orders of the brain. If the heart rebels against the orders of the brain, all these arrhythmias and tachycardias will happen and the person will die. But the brain itself needs the heart because without good blood supply, if there is uh, embolus or something like this, is that the brain will suffer from stroke and the person also will die. So there is order here, there is different functions, there is interdependency, and there is one organ, the heart, is submitting to another organ, which is the brain. But we cannot say this means the brain is more important to the body than the heart. Because as the brain is important for the function of the body, the heart also is important for the function of the body. In this light, we have to understand the rules of genders. God had a plan that when he created man and when he created the woman, he gave the man the authority, the leadership. And he gave the woman the submission. And the woman, through her love and her emotions, will nurture the man. And the man, through his direction and his leadership, he will uh, uh, direct and fulfill uh, the needs of the woman. That's why respecting this order and respecting these rules that God planned St. Paul said, let a woman learn in silence 
with full submission. Here, St. Paul is not imposing a new rule on the church, but St. Paul is reflecting on the plan of God, what God intended for the two genders, and he is uh, encouraging us to follow the plan of God. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? Because this is the plan of God. That's what God intended. It is not appropriate for a woman to exercise authority over men. And many people say, no, this teaching has to do with the culture, with the time of St. Paul. But actually from verse 13 to 15, we will understand that this instruction doesn't have to do anything with the culture. But it has to do with the plan of God, the intention of God when he created two different genders. In verse 13, he said, he gave actually St. Paul two reasons for why he is not permitting the woman to have authority over a man and why he is not giving uh, permission to the woman to teach. He said, because that is the order of God. Number one, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So, this instruction based upon the very nature of the relationship that God had defined between men and women from Genesis, the order of creation. God created man first, then the woman. As we say, the son is born from the father. That's why, although there is no difference in time between the son and the father, but the son submits to the father because the son is born from the father. In the same way, the woman was taken from the man, not the opposite. That's why women submit to the man. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, St. Paul said, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Definitely there is no difference between Christ and God. But what he meant by the head of Christ is God, that Christ the Son is begotten from the Father, not the opposite. That's why the Son who is begotten from the Father submit to the Father. And then Christ created man. That's why the head of the man is Christ. And from the man, the woman was created. So the head of the uh, woman is the man. There is no superiority here, because if we say there is superiority, then God will be superior to Christ. And this is the heresy of Arius that the church uh, uh, fought against. But that is the order of creation. God had a plan. God uh, had designed the, uh, and, and regulated the relationship between the two genders. So that is the first reason. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And the second reason, it has to do with the manner of fall. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. He said that how the deception happened, how the fall happened, when the serpent went to Eve, knowing her nature as more emotional than the man. That's why she is more susceptible to deception. That's why St. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, he called the woman the weaker vessel. Why he called the woman the weaker vessel in 1 Peter chapter 3? Because she is, by her nature, more susceptible to be deceived. That's why the, the authority and the leadership 
was given to the man. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I'm sure some may think, but we cannot generalize this because there are many women who are uh, strong and who are not susceptible to deception. So how St. Paul generalize this? And here I'd like to quote our father, his holiness, Pope Shenouda, when he said, it is not good for a lion to sing or for a bird to roar. The beauty of the bird when sings and the beauty of the lion when he roars. But if the bird starts to roar, lost the beauty. And when a lion starts to sing, lost its beauty. Yes, there are some birds who are roaring, but they are not birds anymore. And there are some lions who are singing, but they are not lions anymore. So you need to think about you know, the calling of God, the plan that God intended for you. And by fulfilling this calling, here the whole creation will live in harmony. But when St. Paul said, uh, the woman being deceived fell into transgressions, he said, but God called them to a very important truth, which is childbearing and rearing. And if you think about it, a physician treats a person, engineer builds a building or fix machines or make plans for you know, uh, some uh, engineering or electronic stuff. But whom God entrusted with raising up children? Raising up children is the most important role in, in, in the world, if you think about it. And God entrusted the woman with this because of her nature, the kind nature, the love, the emotions that God planted in her heart. That's why God entrusted her with this. That's why in verse 15, St. Paul says, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. How can we understand this verse? This verse can have reference to the incarnation. So although Eve was deceived, but through the childbearing, which is a characteristic of the woman, Christ Jesus Christ was born into the world and we are saved. So as through a woman, we, all of us, we were exiled through the second Eve, St. Mary, the mother of God. Also, all of us, we are saved. She will be saved in a childbearing. But another meaning, maybe St. Paul here is referring to the punishment that Eve received in childbearing. So St. Paul, maybe he wants to say, in the midst of the suffering of the childbearing, in the midst of the pains of the childbearing, she will be saved if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So the salvation can happen in the midst of the suffering, the punishment of childbearing, she will be saved if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So the punishment is not the end of the story. There is a hope here. There is a hope if they kept these four virtues, faith, love, holiness, and self-control, then they will be saved. Some fathers, like St. John Chrysostom, he said the word they refers to the children, not to the mothers. 
So if their children continue in faith, love, holiness, or self-control, which means if they discipline their children and they raise them in the fear of God. But most of the fathers said that the word they refers to the mothers, not to the children. So nevertheless, she, the woman, will be saved in childbearing, will be saved uh, in the midst of the pain of childbearing when the mothers continue in faith, trusting God, love for God and for everybody, living a holy and godly life with self-control and discipline. Thus, St. Paul concluded his instruction about the worship and prayer, and in the following chapter, chapter 3, he will speak about the hierarchy of the church and the priesthood, the different orders of the priesthood. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.